The last time I stood on this stage, a week ago, I forgot to open by thanking our partners and sponsors. So uh, I'm, going to, I, I'm, I'm just always trying to do better. So uh, I want to thank the Canadian Bankers Association for uh, now in the second year of making this possible. I want to thank our partners at CPAC for spreading the lively conversations that we have here out uh, to the rest of the world. And I want to thank the National Arts Centre for existing and giving us their best room to make this happen. Um, now, that's what I didn't do the last time I was here. The last time before that, in April, I stood out here and I said, the one thing I don't want to do in this federal election year is crowd this stage with a bunch of federal politicians because they're so boring in an election year. They just rattle off the talking points. And um, that reminds me never to make a promise because uh, after I said that, things started to get a little weird. And, uh, and a lot of the uh, surprises in the recent headlines are centered around one person, the leader of the Green Party, um, who I, it, it's always like we're meeting her again for the first time. And so let's meet her again for the first time tonight. Uh, Elizabeth Mays here. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you for the first time. Yes, your name is... And if I can get through the whole night without calling you Theresa May, it'll be a banner night. I really have a bone to pick with her. How come? Well, she makes people hate the sound of Prime Minister May before I've had a chance. <laughs> if it hadn't been for her, it'd have been smooth sailing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, you offered the leadership of your party, or you offered a shot at the leadership of your party, to Jody Wilson-Raybould and to Jane Philpott. Not really offered, but... Well, good, because I was going to ask, if it's open, can I have it? <laughs> no, well, what happened was, it's so funny, because my relationship with Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould is that we're friends and colleagues, and I have immense respect for them. And when we started talking seriously about, would you like, you know, would you like to join us? I would love you to join us. And then I said, just checking, do you have any interest in being leader? No, because it would have been an option to say, look, succession planning down the road, but, but, but by the time you actually answer a question honestly, and as you'll notice, I'm never on a message track, I said, yeah, I said them right away. And of course, the question hadn't been, did you offer that? The media question was, do you think they didn't want to join your party because they don't think you're a good leader and they'd like to be leader themselves? I thought, no. My first question was, are you interested in being leader? And they said, no. So I am always looking at succession planning. And of course, as in any political party, the current leader doesn't hand on a silver platter the next leadership to someone else. You have to run. And right now, I have no intention of stepping down. So, but if you're serious, we should talk. Um. <laughs> So far, the paychecks from uh, McLean's don't bounce, so I think I'm okay. Um, uh, we have to unpack about four issues that come up in that, in that, in that one answer. Um, before we talk about the leadership of the party and succession and pasts and futures, let's talk about these two politicians, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. Um, uh, was there something specific about them that recommended them to the Green Party? Uh, what makes a good Green Party politician apart from being available? Well, the first thing to say is what recommended them in that moment is obvious. Mm -hmm. Two high-profile members, mm -hmm. handpicked by Justin Trudeau, who had done an exemplary job in Cabinet as far as I could see. I'd been uh, publicly giving credit 
to Jane Philpott and publicly giving credit to Jody Wilson for various policy decisions they were working on while they were in cabinet. I wasn't one of those who hated them when they were liberals and suddenly thought they were saints when they weren't, right? So mm -hmm. they are friends and, and I mean it literally, friends and colleagues. And in, uh, when I first met Jane Philpott, I think she'd been Minister of Health for maybe a week. She still didn't have a, a receptionist in the outer corridors of the Tiny's Pasture Health Canada building. And I went in to say, I've got this bill that I passed in the last parliament for a national Lyme disease framework. And under that legislation, we have to have a national Congress within this set period of time. And no one had yet briefed her on it. So that was our, our first meeting. And we liked each other right away. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould I'd known from before she was elected, before she became a Minister of Justice. We're both from British Columbia. She's a very high profile indigenous leader from the British uh, Columbia uh, Council of Indian Chiefs. So I just thought it was stunning to have a woman indigenous lawyer become our Minister of Justice. So what recommended them was there are not a lot of people who are looking for a political home who are already elected and have already shown integrity independent-minded thinking, and a core commitment to values that were very similar to my own. Now, the broader question, what makes someone a good uh, green candidate, is whether, and this is true around the world, we, we have, I'm, by the way, co-chair of something called the Global Greens Parliamentarians Association. There are 400 elected Greens at the federal level, national level around the world. And all we have in common as Greens, whether it's Andrew Weaver as leader of the BC Greens, or Peter Bevan Baker and the PEI Greens, or me, or James Shaw, who's the Minister of Climate and co-leader of New Zealand Greens, is a commitment to the same core values. And they are enunciated on all of our websites. We have six core green values. And if people ascribe to those, and by their conduct and their life choices appear to be solid, authentic Greens, then they belong with us. But we welcome people from other parties. We've had people join us who, in the last election, ran Liberal, or in the last election, ran NDP. And they want to have a home in the Green Party, and they do. Um, staying on this weird moment when two senior cabinet ministers quit uh, the government, um, I, I want to run sort of two of the articles of indictment that are now popular among Liberals about these two MPs mm -hmm. past you and see what you think. One is that they are opportunists who are blinded by ambition. Does that, how do you, how, does that square with your knowledge of these, of these two people? Could anyone make that claim when you take two cabinet ministers who step out of positions of power and decide to run as independents? I don't see the power play there. Okay. It's, it's almost, la it's quite laughable, really. All I know is what I read on Twitter, and, yeah. and a lot of people are making that claim. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, the second claim might be more credible. Because of what they've done, the Liberals are now seriously endangered in the next election, <clears throat> and Andrew Scheer could be the next Prime Minister. And I know that these electoral calculations and the necessity of having to make such electoral calculations in the current um, electoral system that we have is a, is a question that in one way or another has dogged you for many years. Mm -hmm. um, what do you make of this? That because they've revealed, created, um, uh, dared to acknowledge weakness in the Liberal Party. Now Andrew Scheer's uh, looking pretty happy these days. I don't see Andrew Scheer looking pretty happy. It's astonishing how little his poll numbers have grown with an opportunity this large. So I don't find that a credible threat at this point. And I also think it's not fair to say it's because of what they did. I mean, I really, I really would have wished that even after 
the SNC-Lavalin question, even after Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, that Justin Trudeau had found a way to say, yeah, I made a mistake. Uh, we should not have pressured you. I, I, to this day, think the biggest mistake that happened in the SNC-Lavalin issue within PMO and in the Government of Canada was that no one gave the Prime Minister good legal advice. I find that stunning, but that's clearly the, the reality, as I see it as a former practicing lawyer, that you know, I think they were, frankly, bedazzled by the fact that the lawyer for SNC-Lavalin was former Supreme Court Judge Frank Iacobucci. So who gave them good legal advice? Michael Warnick's testimony to the committee made it clear that he didn't understand the Shawcross principle. And why would Justin Trudeau know the Shawcross principle? It's not something everybody comes across every day of the week. Someone needed to say, right, we have this, this principle of prosecutorial independence. The director of public prosecutions gave a Section 13 report to the Attorney General. Uh, you can deliver new evidence, but it goes to, as, and, and Jody Wilson-Raybould offered this, she said, if you want to give me evidence in a letter, I'll give it to the Director of Public Prosecutions. No one ever did that. So SNC-Lavalin has to go to open court. The, the crimes they are alleged to have committed have to be heard in open court. And then, frankly, I have a great idea. I haven't gotten to say it publicly. I think when it comes to sentencing, that's when we should move in with a, a, a deferred prosecution agreement. We can move in after the verdict and before sentencing. And if SNC-Lavalin is found guilty, we should sentence them to community service. So they have to provide drinking water to every First Nations reserve across this country without charging a profit. It'll keep all their workers really busy. They're really smart engineers. And it'll keep them busy for quite a while. Okay. It may. <laughs> It'd be fun, eh? Think of all the things they could do. Now, now. Well, are there rules? I make them up as I go along, and then two okay. months later, I break them. So, <laughs> yes. Um, they may have some trouble staying in business if that's the, if that's well, the business they're well, in. Well, no, they've got $15 billion of assured contracts based on our last financial statements as it is. And as long as they, I mean, there has to be, there has to be a consequence. If they're staying in business because their competitors don't bribe people, and they do, then I think that's a problem. And they do carry the Canada brand around the world, and that's a problem. So, you know, I'm not presuming they're guilty. I just think that, and like, you know, the average, the average person goes to court, they commit a crime, they're going to, or if they're accused of a crime, it's going to be heard in open court. This should be heard in open court. They have come close to making the opposite argument, and certainly a lot of, um, um, a lot of uh, my colleagues have made this argument on their behalf. They're, they're darn near the only uh, company that doesn't go around making, making bribes, or if they were the only one that didn't make bribes, then they'd be at a competitive disadvantage because it's a bribey world. Uh, what do you make of that? I think that's a sad commentary, and it's not how Canadians should operate in the world. Okay. Now, um, I had no plan for this conversation, and I certainly wasn't expecting to spend the first few minutes discussing SNC-Lavalin. <laughs> Outside, we were talking about whether it's uh, as big a bombshell as, as whether it, even when it was uh, at the peak of the story, whether it had the nation as transfixed as it had mm -hmm people like me transfixed. Right. What, what's your view of that? Yeah, my observation is that Canadians were transfixed as though it was a soap opera. The human drama had people saying to me, I was riveted, I watched it for four hours. Right? Mm -hmm. But when I did a cross-country open mic town hall tour in 23 communities in all the, well, from BC to Manitoba, Quebec, through all the Maritimes, so we have to get to Newfoundland. But 
with an open mic over a series of two hours in 23 communities, we had one question at SNC-Lavalin. So will it affect people's votes? I don't think so. Are they interested in it? How did it happen? What, you know, the, the, it's, as I said, the human drama was riveting. Um, people who'd never heard of the term clerk of Privy Council were, had opinions on the clerk of the Privy Council. But it's, uh, I think what, what we heard over and over again across the country is what are we going to do about the climate crisis? You know, my community was on fire. What are we going to do? My community was underwater. What are we going to do? You've now been leader of the Green Party for 13 years. Yes. Um, and it seems like our politics very often turns around questions of climate and the environment. It's how Stefan Dion became liberal leader. It's, um, um, uh, it was central to the majority mandate of Stephen Harper. Um, and it's become one of the uh, key questions um, on which the liberals will be judged in the fall. And, and yet our politics turns around uh, climate questions, but they're... For all that, there often doesn't seem to be an awful lot of progress on climate questions. There's none. We slide backwards, really. Um, I assume you're not thrilled by that. No. No, I've been working on the issue of climate crisis since when it wasn't called the climate crisis. I, I was an environmental lawyer, and you probably know the story. I was recruited into the office of the Minister of Environment in the Mulroney government, and I wasn't a member of the Progressive Conservative Party. I wasn't a member of any party. But in that period of time, I learned my climate science from sitting next to the minister while he was briefed by Environment Canada scientists. And I was lucky to learn my climate science before the, you know, the myth of doubt was in, they had not been invented. It was, this is what's going to happen unless we do something. And when I say we slid backwards, I, mean, I remember how I was disappointed, frankly, that the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that we signed in uh, Rio in June 92, I was disappointed that it was, it was as weak as it is. Yet over time, the commitment in that convention, which is still what guides all the negotiations we have around the world, it's, it's within the rubric of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that Paris was negotiated in 2015. That document called on all governments to reduce emissions before they became dangerous. And on the stage signing that document was literally everyone from George Bush to Fidel Castro. And yet the other day, and it was about a few months ago I heard this, and it, it made my heart sink, that the total amount of greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels emitted on planet Earth between when we signed that in June 92 and now is more than everything before the Industrial Revolution till June 92. So that it doesn't make me feel good, as a matter of fact, given the evidence from the IPCC report from last October, we know that we have one chance only to ensure that human civilization survives. It's to hold global average temperature to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above what it was before the Industrial Revolution. It's a terrible target. It takes that many words to say it. But that one chance, the window will close, and it doesn't reopen. So it's not a political target. It's not negotiable. It's not debatable. And we hardly ever talk about it. So we're in a climate emergency. That means we're not in a status quo world anymore. Everything has changed. And yet, day in and day out in Ottawa, well, we, we don't act as if we're taking it seriously. We haven't adjusted our target to reduce emissions from the one left behind from Stephen Harper's administration, which was tabled with the UN before the Paris target was selected. So it's loosely referred to as the Paris target. It's, it's never been consistent with the Paris target. And we just realized that the Paris agreement, which said we can, you know, try to hold 1.5 degrees, and certainly as far below 2 degrees as possible. For some governments, they're sort of saying, yeah, 2 degrees will be OK. 
1.5 to 2. Well, now we know from the IPCC report that 2 degrees is far too dangerous. We can't afford to go near it. We have to hold to 1.5. We're already more than 1 degree global average temperature degrees Celsius above what it was before the Industrial Revolution. So we don't have any time for, you know, it, it's bad luck for current, the current generation of politicians because the time for procrastination has run out. Uh, or pre and I've been working with every single government since June 92 to try to get climate action. And some, by the way, Paul Martin had a really good climate plan. It would have taken us almost all the way to Kyoto in 2005. That was the last good plan we saw. Well, what about this game? They don't have a good plan. They don't have a plan. And they, they don't have, and it's sad to say, I mean, they have, they've taken measures, mm -hmm. but if you don't have a plan that actually achieves the target you've selected, and if the target you've selected is the one left behind by the previous government that didn't take climate change seriously, and it's not consistent with the document you signed, which is 1.5 degrees. Uh, the, the, right now, the collectivity, looking at it globally so it doesn't sound like I'm being partisan, if you take all the targets of all the governments around the world as they existed in December 2015 when we negotiated in Paris, the cumulative effect of everyone hitting their targets is to increase global average temperature somewhere between 2.4 degrees and 3.5. And now that we know that we have to hold to 1.5, or we really are playing Russian roulette with whether humanity survives at all, well, then you have to relook at your targets. And, and so for a government that has such good rhetoric, an administration that has such good rhetoric, I'm deeply disappointed because day in and day out, there's no question that the, the, the rhetorical commitments of liberals and the steps they've taken, you know, it's hard to bring in a car carbon price. You know, they're bringing in regulations on methane. They're bringing in some measures. They claim we're going off coal, but if we use fracked natural gas instead, we're not actually making an improvement. But, you know, I'm not going to say they've done absolutely nothing. But what they've done amounts to an abdication of responsibility to take the actions that are required. Because losing, you know, a bunch of actions that are weak, but that are better than someone who wants to do nothing, is just another way of losing. I got a hunch, I've written this 20 times, that the next election coming up now in only a few months is going to be a confrontation largely between the Liberals and the Conservatives over who's got a real plan for the climate. Mm -hmm. As someone who's pretty sure that the Liberals don't have a, 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 enough of a plan, um, how's it going to feel like watching that a polarized debate between two parties that you don't think either one of them has the answer? The important thing is that I'm, I'm in that conversation and I don't see it as being two-party choice. We have six parties that are going to be fielding candidates that currently have seats in Parliament. I think the likelihood with six parties that are going to return at least some number of MPs, we can debate how many seats the People's Party might get, but it's certainly going to shave some percentages off the Conservative Party. And, and so when you look at that mix, I think the, likely, the, the greater likelihood than we've ever had before, well, in recent years, greater likelihood of a minority parliament. And in a minority parliament, if we can have the kind of cooperation that occurred, so there's some, some suppositions here, but if you go back to the government of Lester B. Pearson and the 17 New Democrats that were never in a formal coalition with Lester B. Pearson, but brought us universal health care, unemployment insurance, Canada pension plan, student loans with no interest rates, you know, and a flag, you know, you take all that together and say, that's the kind of government we need right now because in order to respond to the climate crisis, and do it effectively. We have to set partisan politics to the side. Now, in an election year, that gets darn hard. 
So my hope is that by intervening in the discussion, I mean, maybe, I don't rule it out, that the liberals and the conservatives, who knows, if they actually woke up one morning and realized, oh my God, by the time my children are my age, they won't have a livable world. I can't live with that. We've actually got to do what's required. And, and as Greens, we've put forward what we call mission possible. It's not mission easy, but it is possible. And it will require quite, a, well, really a transformational effort, the kind of transformation of our economy that we haven't seen since the Second World War. It's major, but it's all, it does lead us to a positive place where people have jobs and Canadians are happy. But it requires getting off fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, I want to come back to that, but um, uh, let's stick with the Liberals. There was a, a report that came out last year um, by most of the country's auditors general. Mm -hmm. You'll remember the report. And um, what it said is that only Nova Scotia was meeting the targets it had most recently set. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of at a, at a higher level, what it says is, that a lot of the problem in climate politics is not the parties that are, that are sure they're against effective action on climate change. It's the parties that are pretty sure they are for effective action on, car, on climate change and then never get around to taking it. Right. That governments like Kathleen Wynne's in Ontario, uh, like the um, uh, several of the Atlantic uh, um, uh, provinces, you had governments that uh, absolutely rhetorically um, nailed themselves to the math, mast of, 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 of effective action on climate change, and then they never actually did much. Mm -hmm. they, there, there wasn't centralized um, uh, uh, planning, there wasn't step-by-step -step planning, there wasn't step-by-step -step reporting. Uh, it, it, it's all just stuff they say to, to, to make themselves feel good, and then uh, they don't follow through. Um, how can we change that, short of an absolute Green Party sweep at the next election? Well, how can we get... Let's not discount <laughs> that, right? <laughs> I think it's unlikely. But I, think it I think it begins tonight, frankly. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We've doubled our polling numbers in the last little. <laughs> no, what it is, it, I don't discount the ability of anyone in public life to actually do what's required. The problem is that in our political world, and I don't need to tell you, Politicians look at what needs to be done and say, well, we better be incremental. I mean, that's what you wrote, of course, about the long ground prime minister. Harper was incremental. The enemy of climate action right now is incrementalism. I remember one of the best, we have the large climate march in, uh, in New York in September 2014. I was with my daughter. We took the train down in New York, and we marched with 400,000 people. And it was in the build-up to Paris. And what it's the, my favorite sign being held by someone on the side of the sidewalk in Manhattan was, it's time to stop debating what is possible and start doing what is necessary. Now, in political life, that gets hard. So you think, well, we've put in carbon pricing, so we better buy a pipeline. You know, you can't, if, if, if the environment and the economy will go hand in hand if, you're in, if your environmental actions are smart promote economic efficiency, modernize your economy, they'll be good for your, for your economy while you reduce greenhouse gases. But you can't say we're going to increase greenhouse gases over here while we try to cut them over here. It's like Bill McGibbon, who's one of the great climate activists of the world, says, you know, the first rule of holes is stop digging. And we can't seem to get politicians to stop digging while they're also claiming they're taking climate action. And one of the great tragedies, I think, of the, the Liberals' start in this was that um, 
the pan-Canadian framework, so-called, was negotiated around the idea, we have all these friendly premiers, and all we have to do is take existing actions, put them all together, and call it a plan. Now, the federal government has powers that the current administration hasn't even thought about, as far as I can see. They haven't mentioned once, you know, under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, uh, carbon dioxide is a listed toxic. We can regulate, there's basically 200 facilities across Canada that are responsible for the lion's share of greenhouse gases. They could be regulated. We, we don't even need to pass a new law. There's an existing authority to regulate in the hands of the Federal Minister of Environment that hasn't been used. At the same time, we can say, well, gee, the 2005 climate plan that Paul Martin brought in, it had incentives for home energy retrofits right across the country. That hasn't been brought back. We had incentives to buy energy efficient vehicles, electric vehicles and hybrids. That was only brought back in this budget in 2019. I expected to see, I expected to see it 2015. So when you look at, and it, by the way, to highlight the point you made, it was astonishing to see the Federal Auditor General and the Commissioner of the Environment's Office get the buy-in. This was great from every Auditor General across the country. So that is another key thing, is to, is to make sure we actually are tracking what we're doing, accountable for what we're doing. But it starts with saying we have to get to, what well, our view is we have to get to 60% below 2005 levels by 2030, which means you have to start soon, and zero by 2050, and that should be legislated. So you actually are tracking what you're doing against your commitments, not just making it as a political promise and, and waffling on it later. So another recent thing I saw, I believe from the Environment Commissioner, was that in 2017, when Kathleen Wynne was still the Premier of Ontario and Rachel Notley was still the Premier of Alberta and mm -hmm. Philip Couillard was still the Premier of Quebec, Canada's carbon emissions went up. Yep. Now none of those people are in charge, and so it just got harder, but last time it was easier or easy-ish, uh, emissions were still going up. Well, you know, if you look at, there's a very interesting view because the, uh, one of the things you may recall from that Auditor General study is that nobody was paying attention anymore to the Copenhagen target that Stephen Harper put in place for 2020. And a recent study looked at it and said, if you take Alberta and Saskatchewan out of the equation, Canada would hit its 2020 target. But the growth in emissions from Saskatchewan and Alberta are the reasons that we're so far off track. Now, Nobody, I, least of all me, as leader of the Green Party, wants to make any part of this country feel excluded, left out, or blamed for the mess we're in. But we have to deal with the emissions from the oil patch, from growth in emissions in Saskatchewan, in Alberta. We have to figure out how do we square that circle so that we actually bring down emissions dramatically without creating, uh, well, the kind of, I think, deliberately divisive politics of Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney, who usually are not put in the same sentence, except for the fact that they both like the idea of saying it's British Columbia's fault, we can't get a pipeline, and we need a pipeline. And there's, you know, that's unfortunate because we really need a strategy that says, what does Canada's energy security strategy look like? What does our climate strategy look like? What does our energy development strategy look like? And how do we work that out as a country instead of allowing one province to be pitted against another? What happens to the economy if you regulate a few hundred large carbon emitters uh, on the principle that carbon is a toxin? What happens to the economy from one day to the next? Well, the, the, I'm not advocating, and Mission Possible doesn't advocate that we do everything through regulation. We want to do it through proactive development of a strong renewable energy sector, which requires actually, you know, Shear talks about energy corridor. 
so do I, but his, his is pipelines and mine is an electricity grid that's running 100% on a renewable energy. So there's a lot of work to be done because we actually have gaps in our electricity grid, Manitoba to Ontario. We have some gaps, Quebec Hydro basically stops at Moncton, but it could reach all of Atlantic Canada. So you start looking at the pieces to make sure we have to have an efficient electricity grid running on 100% renewables. That isn't done essentially only by regulation. But if you did bring in regulations to say the, the, the large emitters are basically uh, coal-fired electricity plants and cement. Those are the biggest by category. And if you start saying, this is, what, this is what you're looking at. You're gonna have to cut by 50% by this date. And meanwhile, we also have some money to help you. If you'd like to shift right away to renewable energy, we'll help you do that. So it's, a, it's always in Canada, carrots and sticks. It's always working. And when I was in the Mulroney, as I mentioned, working in, in uh, the Ministry of Environment's office, the acid rain issue wasn't easily solved. It was less difficult than climate action, but uh, we didn't ever get all the provinces in a room and say, can you all agree? We started, we negotiated with seven eastern provinces, one province at a time. First prov provincial agreement we got was Canada, PEI. It was pretty easy, because there weren't a lot of admitters in PEI, but we, we finished with Ontario where the big problem was INCO, because INCO was threatening it would, show, it would shut down if they were required to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions. So there's ways, I mean, the, the, there are ways to think like a country and actually through federal leadership, rather than coercion, get everyone involved in a plan that actually saves us. And when I mean everyone, I, the municipal order of government wants to be involved. And I think service clubs, individual Canadians, school kids, if you say, look, we've got a lot of trees that need planting, Please let us know how many communities want to plant, you know, how many Rotary Clubs want, want trees? We'll send them to you. You plant them. How many of you want to plant some, some gardens so that you have more local food? How many of you want to install solar panels? I mean, every institutional building in this country should generate all its own electricity from solar panels backed up with battery power. And we should be plugging our cars into our buildings. This is all doable, but we are, we are cursed with extremely limited imaginations and really incrementally inefficient policy. Um, you talk about the difficulty of governing in a federation. Part of your mission possible plan is to um, use only Canadian oil during a transition period yeah. uh, at the end of which we wouldn't be using any oil. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and for that great idea you got chewed out by the leader of the Green Party in Quebec yeah. who said uh, we're not going to be using more Alberta oil, thank you very much. He, he didn't actually uh, look at the full document. What we're proposing is that for Quebec and for Atlantic Canada, we can reduce the number of tankers moving through Atlantic Canadian waters by getting Hibernia. Now, this is not going to be overnight. You can't wave a magic wand and undo a lot of commercial contracts. But Hibernia oil is over 80% exported. Um, the only Saudi Arabian oil that goes into Canada goes to the Irving refinery in St. John. They're the only buyers of Saudi oil, and they buy it not because there isn't a pipeline from Alberta. If there was a pipeline from Alberta, the Energy East proposal was 100% for export in terms of bitumen, and bitumen can't be processed at the Irving refinery. But the Hibernia oil would suit. And so you could start seeing your way to reduce the number of tankers, use Canadian oil, and there'd be enough after meeting the needs of Irving to be able to replace the back and shale. You'll remember back and shale is what blew up in Lac Mégantique. By the way, bitumen on a train doesn't blow up, but I'm not advocating moving bitumen by train. It's just the reality that back and shale is the worst stuff on a train. And it also has a huge carbon footprint because there's a, t a lot of methane flaring 
in the back and fields of North Dakota. So it's, it's a policy that is, I mean, it's certainly unusual, in that if, and we've been saying it for years, that we didn't want uh, this, this absolutely fraught and pointless debate in Canada about shipping raw bitumen out by pipelines when the refinery workers of Canada were saying, don't do that, let's use it here. So the, the fact that the large labor unions in Alberta were against building Kinder Morgan, against that pipeline, is something that didn't get widely, widely known. So for, for Western Canada, the existing, there's, there's, there's an existing infrastructure that meets the needs of a domestic market. But we've been so conditioned from everybody in politics and in Alberta saying, we have to get our oil to market. Well, there's a market, and it's Canada. And we, but of course, it's not music to their ears in Alberta, because the Greens are talking about a quite dramatic reduction in our use of fossil fuels. And Alberta, by the way, has the best potential of any province for solar energy. It has enormous potential for wind power. And so replacing coal in Alberta with wind and solar is totally doable, good for their economy. And in the meantime, over time, bitumen can become the feedstock for a petrochemical industry instead of burning it. So but what they often say is that that bitumen uh, and other petroleum products go um, largely to fuel uh, legally uh, common uh, consumer products like cars and airplanes. Yeah. They look at a city like Ottawa, traffic jam at 4 o'clock. Mm -hmm. They look at the members of parliament flying home to their ridings every weekend mm -hmm. in airplanes. Yeah. And they say, look, if we're going to go to a zero carbon economy, that's great. You go first. Mm -hmm. uh, is that not a fair uh, claim for them to make? It's the hardwiring of our economy to fossil fuels is not something that can be blamed on individuals who are in their cars driving home at the end of the day. You need to make a dramatic transition, which means you actually have to have a plan. And you can't say, I'm going to snap my fingers, and tomorrow all those cars are going to be electric. You can say, by 2030, all those cars are going to be electric. And you can say, I mean, I have been arguing for our parliamentary schedule to change so that we're able to get home on trains, but that's not something I've been successful in doing. Uh, the reality of a lot of people's day-to-day -day work is that they're using fossil fuels. But our 60% reduction by 2030 is doable. And the reality of it is, this isn't a debate. There is a real case here that human civilization is not just at risk, but, go, but headed towards uh, breakdown without the kind of dramatic action I'm talking about. So I'm open to hearing better plans for holding to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But if all people want to do is say, I don't like the steps you're going to have to take to ensure my child has a livable world. I'd like them to look at the science and come back and we'll talk about it. Okay. The, the darndest thing is, uh, the, the, the people who say it's not a debate keep losing elections. The people who say it is a, is a debate keep winning. Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, uh, conservative parties in uh, New Brunswick, in, uh, in Saskatchewan. I mean, um, at, at some point, uh, do you not have to acknowledge that uh, there are some people, not, not just the leaders of those parties, but the electorates in those provinces who, are, who, who, who seem unconvinced? Well, number one, I don't think anyone could claim that in any of those elections that you've mentioned, provincial elections, that climate was a key issue. For instance, if Patrick Brown hadn't had that very strange episode which led to him being replaced, I mean, I, don't think, I can't think of any other time in Canadian politics that the leader of a party facing an election within three months has been replaced. But Patrick Brown's version of a progressive conservative party in Ontario included carbon pricing. 
So, and it was on the cards inevitable that once Wild Rose merged with progressive conservatives in Alberta, that Rachel Notley couldn't hold on to power. So it's, it's, but what one must do is I think look at the only historical precedent we've ever seen for the kind of changes that must be made. By the way, of course, the European Greens just won more seats than they've ever won in the European Parliament. And we're seeing around the world people responding to the climate crisis. Other countries are doing so much more than we're doing. But the period of time historically that I would refer to is what, what happened in the Second World War. I mean, obviously, um, in the United States, FDR wasn't able to rally Americans to take on Hitler till Britain had been in the war and Canada had been in the war for some time. But when you look at that period of May 1940, and forgive me, I really do spend a lot of time thinking about this because I have a lot of people who study climate science who come to me and say, it's too late already look at the facts. There's no way for us to get out of this. We've got, you know, we're already at one degree Celsius. We're seeing increases in greenhouse gases. We're seeing people who don't even want to talk about climate action. I think about Churchill being surrounded by people who are saying, well, like Neville Chamberlain, like Lord Halifax, you know, we're, we're we have our entire British army is, is pinned down at Dunkirk. We can't get them out of there. The, the Navy can't reach them. The shores are too shallow. We have, we're, they're being strafed by Luftwaffe. Our, our coastlines are defenseless. Face it. Let's go get our nice friend, Mr. Mussolini, to talk to Herr Hitler. And in that moment, which is what I draw great, great strengths from, you need, you need leadership. So you need someone. And what made Churchill think of it, I can't imagine. I can't, I've read a number of historical books, and I can't find the moment when somebody, or Churchill on his own, was inspired to ask, how many civilian boats are there in Dover? And that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at political miracles, real miracles, leadership to which Canadians rally. I mean, you can point to Canadian uh, elections and say it went this way or it went that way. I never saw any leadership from anybody in any of those elections saying, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is all hands on deck to save ourselves. And it's an ambitious project that inspires a nation. Okay. I know I'm not the first reporter to ask you, who's Hitler in this analogy? Uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of a pogo answer. Okay. We've met the enemy and he is us. There is no Hitler in the analogy, but there is an existential threat. There is the need for leadership. There is the need for courage. And I'm not prepared to believe that our generation of Canadians has any less courage or sense of moral duty and responsibility to our kids than my parents' and grandparents' generation. You made this case in 2008, 2011, and 2015. No, I haven't. I could go back Sorry. and look. Well, the uh, case wasn't. I, the, uh, the IPCC had not told us that we were actually in this much trouble. Okay. I made the case for climate action, made the case for pharmacare, made the case to fight poverty, made the case that, that we, could, we could do a better job if we all worked together. The IPCC report of October 8, 2018 changed a lot for me, I think it changed a lot for the world. It is an unforget, well, it's actually probably overly generous around what we can do and how much time we have. But it's absolutely required reading for anyone who's a serious political figure. You have to know what, what the odds are, what the risks are, and pretending that this is a regular election. I mean, my, the first step of Mission Possible is create a war, the equivalent of a war cabinet from that experience I just mentioned. Bring your political opponents into the same room because we can't afford to have climate action any longer based on, okay, 
after the election's over, the next government comes in and erases all of it. You have to actually have a consensus that says it's a security threat. These are the steps we're taking, and we're holding to them because we're making these decisions across party lines. I know it's a big leap from the way we usually think about partisan politics, but if we keep doing politics the way we're doing politics, and we keep doing climate action the way we're doing climate action, we will not have a history that judges us because we won't, we, we may not, we certainly as a civilization won't be here. We may not be here as a species. So the, the odds couldn't be higher, and yet we don't want to talk, and it's, it's obvious why we don't want to talk about it. It's fairly scary stuff, and it makes people think, well, that must be an exaggeration. You know, all I can say is I only wish it was. Okay. Um, I'll finish my thought because it's an unpleasant one, and those are the ones I always like to finish. Um, <laughs> you led the Green Party in 2008, 11, and 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Green Party's share of the popular vote declined mm -hmm. from 2008 to 2011 to 2015. Um, elections depend on a bunch of variables. They depend on the climate, on the, on the climate of opinion. Right. They depend on the electorate. They also depend on the action of each party. Are you planning to fight this election differently? Do you have ideas about how you're going to campaign? Well, I know that we got our highest popular vote when I was the only time I was included in the English language televised national leaders debate. And that led to a very high vote. In I happen to know for a fact that you were in included in one English language one debate in, in 2015. August of 2015, but the national televised English, and thank you for that, Paul, and thank you, McLean's. But the national televised English language leader debate that I wasn't allowed in in 2011, but it took place, was canceled in 2015, so no one got to watch it. And now that, that I'm, you know, now that the Greens are recognized, we have doubled our caucus in Parliament with the election of Paul Manley and the Nimo Ladysmith, and now we're polling at a level that I, and we also have a leaders debate commission, which is running a nonpartisan effort to coordinate with all the networks. So being in the leaders debate is the single largest factor in what happens to our popular vote. Because your coverage, as you know in the media, if, if the, the, what are considered the big parties uh, get more coverage than what are considered small parties. So one way or another, media communicates to the, to the citizenry, this is a real party, that one isn't. Now we're a real party. We're at the big kids' table, so we'll campaign as hard as we can with the great candidates we have. And I think we've certainly learned a lot as a party. We know how to elect people. We have official opposition in Prince Edward Island, a substantial Green Party caucus in British Columbia that holds the balance of power, terrific representation in Queen's Park with Mike Schreiner, three Green MLAs in New Brunswick, and if the Manitoba election happens before the general, we'll have elected Greens in Manitoba. So we'll, I would say basically uh, everything has changed compared to where we were in previous elections. A lot of people have the feeling that the Green Party is the Elizabeth May Show. Well, that's unfortunate because it's not. We have, as I said, we have elect 17 elected Greens across Canada. That's not easy in a first-past-the-post country. As a matter of fact, of all the first-past-the-post democracies around the world, Canada's the only place where Greens have succeeded in being elected in larger numbers. Hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about the experience of watching electoral reform go down in flames yet again at the federal level. Well, that was a hard experience because I, uh, I believed the promise, the, I believed a lot of the promises the Liberals made in, in the 2015 campaign. In fact, I voted for the speech from the throne when it came down because it included so many things I believed in, like 2015 will be the last election held under first past the post and we'll take dramatic climate action. We'll re restore environmental assessment legislation, which is another whole sad story because they haven't. Uh, but in any case, I was put on that, I was asked to participate on the committee 
So we had a parliamentary special committee on electoral reform. It's the only committee I've been allowed to serve on since I've become a member of parliament. We worked extremely hard and we delivered a very good report. And then within, well, the report was delivered in December. By February 2nd, Karina uh, Gould was told her new mandate letter did not include electoral reform. And I couldn't believe it. I was just deeply shocked because I, I didn't see it coming. I thought we'd be talking about how do we do this? How do we compromise? What would it take to make the liberal administration and, and Justin Trudeau personally convinced that this makes sense for the country? But they got elected on the promise and then they broke the promise. Um, what does that mean for a party like the Greens? Well, I, my main reason, and, and I, I don't really, I know this may be not sound believable, I don't really care what it means for the Greens, I care what it means for democracy. And in an era when someone like Donald Trump can get elected in the United States and, and populism rising, the only way to essentially vaccinate ahead of time to protect this country from ever having a demagogue who has less than 50% public support gaining 100% of the power. Given Westminster parliamentary democracy, we have no separation of legislative and executive. So as soon as a prime minister, and as soon as that party gets more seats, even if it has a minority of public support, it has 100% of the power. The only way to protect ourselves and a future moment in Canada when someone that the majority of Canadians does not want to be prime minister, becoming prime minister, is to ensure that we have a voting system where the votes that are cast get reflected in the parliament that sits. And that's why I'll keep fighting for proportional representation, to keep this country safe from that kind of leader. So Justin Trudeau has said in so many words that what, what he was afraid of was a party led by Kelly Leach at the time. That was the most scary opponent that he could think of, uh, holding the balance of power in a hung parliament. And yeah. that was, that's what he was trying to avoid. Yeah. Well, it also what it means is when you have big tent parties, it means that that group of people within a big tent party pull people to their end as well. The, the, uh, that concern he had, and I tried to talk to him about it, we never had enough time to really finish the conversation, but I now understand more what was in his mind, was that if you're looking at one of the many systems of proportional representation, one of those many systems says if you have this percent of the popular vote, 5%, 2%, whatever, you will then have seats in Parliament. But there's another, you, there are many systems. If you use single transferable vote, it doesn't matter what percent you have across the country, you actually have to win seats where people live in clustered ridings, which is what they do in Ireland and what they do in the Australian Senate. And you would never have a party that just happened to hit a level automatically get seats. They'd have to run and win seats. And that also, by the way, single transferable vote democracies would create a much better opportunity for independence to win within their area. It's remarkable, remarkably proportional and would work really well, at least for this, most of the ridings in Canada. The top, working on this committee, I used to stare at the electoral map. I'd spread it out of my dining room table. I stared at it so long that it suddenly hit me. Holy mackerel, 14 MPs represent half the land mass of this country. So those 14 areas can't be clustered. So that's where the idea came about of having those have a different proportionality. But the rest of Canada, this was Jean-Pierre Kingsley, our former chief electoral officer, said, this is what the committee should do, just take all of the southern band of ridings across Canada, where ridings are clusterable around a certain geography, say four to six ridings together, and everybody would get a chance to get what Justin Trudeau wanted, a ranked ballot of this is my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth choice. And then you'd have proportionality, you'd have more choice, and people would know they elected an MP who represents them. 
So there were options out there that I think would have met what his concern was, as you've expressed it, you don't want an extremist party to get into Parliament. Did you not worry when you noticed that he was exquisitely silent on which option he preferred in his platform? I mean, uh, I'm, I've learned to be very worried about a party that says essentially in their platform, I'm going to give you the thing you want after you elect me. Um, and, and in the end, he said, well, I thought the thing you wanted was ranked ballots because that was the thing that I wanted. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like we got a bit of a bait and switch there. I, okay, so here's the thing. When, before Justin Trudeau was leader of the Liberal Party and we sat together in Parliament, we used to debate this point. So I knew he wanted ranked ballots. And I knew that I wanted proportional representation, and we'd talk about it and debate it. My big mistake was believing that having put it in the platform and having created a process, I thought he would respect the process. I also found it certainly uh, bizarre that the, so, that the one system he was prepared to accept was never put forward by anyone in our committee as an option we should consider. Okay. What is this government like to work with? For someone who's not a member of the governing party. Well, I've worked I've worked well with the, uh, with everybody since I've been elected. I have to say, I mean, I managed Rana Ambrose, God love her, as Minister of Health since I started that the point about when I first met Jane Philpott. I would never have gotten the national framework on Lyme disease through if if Rana Ambrose hadn't been really open and good to work with. I've had good experiences advancing certain policy issues. By the way, we, we haven't done anything near enough to implement that framework and people with Lyme disease across Canada are still suffering. But over issue after issue after issue, I think I've had a fair degree of success. I have had much more success in some of the areas, like getting my amendments have been accepted much more readily in committee dealing with the, the Liberals. My, you know, the points that I make in Parliament uh, are more graciously received, shall we say. We don't have quite, there's not as much ad hominem back and forth stuff as there used to be. So in that sense, they're good to work with. Um, individual ministers, if I go to someone like this recent, or this horrific forest fire in Pakanchapam, First Nation, out between, almost at the Manitoba border, you know, I, I go to ministers before question period starts and say, this, this is horrific, you know, I just heard that the Hercules couldn't land in the community because of the smoke and there's 3,800 people there and I get an honest answer right away from Ralph Goodale and I get knowing, okay, and then he keeps me informed. So they're, from my personal experience, they're good to work with. Uh, they are also massively disappointing. Um, I ask this question with no, with, it takes, I, I take no pleasure in asking this question. Please tell me more about how, why they're disappointing. Okay. <laughs> Well I, can't, uh, well, I could tell you why they're disappointing, and I don't think it's the sense in which you meant the question. When Stephen Harper was in power, it was always easy to figure out the forensics of why something just happened. He decreed it should happen, and it happened. The, dissecting the levels of failure of the Liberals, sometimes you say, well, clearly the decision on electoral reform, to which we just referred, was Justin Trudeau's personal decision on pulling that promise. Why Catherine McKenna's environmental assessment legislation is putrid comes down to a whole bunch of other factors, including that the people left in place in the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency did not want to go back to doing full environmental assessments of every project within federal jurisdiction. They preferred a narrower interpretation. Is this C69? Yeah, yeah, which is a terrible bill. So you go through every time you look at something, well, okay, so what happened there? I mean, a lot of why I think the pan-Canadian framework was so weak is that for, for the first year in which Catherine McKenna was uh, the minister, her deputy 
uh, was the same person who put in place under Harper the 30% target and didn't want to change it. So some of it is bureaucratic intransigence. Some of it is industry lobbying. Some of it is sometimes a minister doesn't know how to say no to the department and put, doesn't know how to push. So I would give full marks, by the way, to Dominic LeBlanc for the fact that C-68, the Fisheries Act, is a full and even improved version of what Harper gutted in 2012. But that's, I think, a lot due to the personal characteristics and strengths of Dominic LeBlanc in knowing how to get what's required and deliver it. And of course, now it's in the Senate. And we have to get it out of there. Uh, so part of it is that Justin Trudeau created real cabinet government again for many things, but still had an overly powerful PMO that made mistakes. So the massive disappointment that I experience is one where I keep thinking, I, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer like they lied to us. That's an easy one. I have a lot of friends. That's their go-to place. They lied to us. I think they may have meant what they were trying to do, uh, but they've made so many mistakes. And buying the pipeline, ah, I, 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 an incredibly um, idiotic way to spend public funds when Kinder Morgan itself had already decided this project has no commercial value, we're not going to pursue it, but I bet we can get these guys. These guys seem pretty desperate. I bet we can get them to buy a pipeline. So we, we, got, we got suckered by the same people, by the way, Kinder Morgan. Richard Kinder used to be Enron, right? So Kinder Morgan used to be Enron Pipelines Limited. So they're good at conning people. Yeah. And we should never have had $4.5 billion going into buying a pipeline that already exists and didn't create a single new job. So the question, why are they so disappointing? Well, they've broken a lot of promises for a lot of different reasons. And they've let, not just, they've, they've let themselves down. They've really let the country down. And I feel personally they let me down. But that's a, a small concern on their part. If it's any consolation, you're not alone. This government also thinks it can be helpful by buying my industry to the tune of $600 million. This is really, so, and that's again a loony decision. What, what are they thinking? What they should do is say, right. Of course, I have no opinion. Okay, but all right. So newspapers in this country are suffering because they don't get enough advertising revenue. So why is the government of Canada advertising on Facebook? Government of Canada should direct all its advertising buys only to Canadian media. We should make sure that CBC, especially the news division, isn't running advertising to compete with the other networks. They should be the only ones who get advertising. We should start figuring out where's the root of this problem. And if we're going to have a media bailout, for heaven's sakes, have the people who decide where the money goes not be the people who are going to receive the money. Somebody should write that. <laughs> um, again and again and again for three years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll try to fix it before then. As I said before, you've been, you, you've been the leader of the party for 13 years. Yeah, I'll point out I'm turning 65 in a couple days, so I'm definitely the oldest leader. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, although there's days when many of us wish the others were a little older. Um, <laughs> but at the last election, the only one with more seniority than you was Stephen Harper. <laughs> now none of them has more seniority than you. Uh, and you dangled your job under the noses of, of Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and Jane Philpott. Uh, you said you have no plans to, 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 to stop being the leader. Why not? Oh, it's not that I don't have any plans to stop being leader. I certainly want to be a leader through this election. I want to get back to Parliament with as many Green MPs as possible. I want to do the best job I possibly can on delivering what needs to be done for this country. But there's, you know, any, anybody in a position of leadership should be thinking about of succession planning. Uh, I just am not thinking about it very much right now because I have a campaign to run and win a lot of seats. And it's looking very promising that way. And frankly, I think having a lot of experience isn't a bad thing for someone in political life. 
Um, every time we talk, which is not that often, I get the feeling that we could talk for hours and hours. Unfortunately, we only booked one of them for uh, tonight, and, th and that hour is up. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I want to thank everyone for joining us. There's a reception next door, and you should really come and hang out. Uh, and I also want, want to once again thank our partners at the NAC and at CPAC and at the Canadian Bankers Association. Thank Thanks you. for coming. Up. Thank you, and thank you again that I was included in the McLean's debate in August 2015. I really appreciated it. Oh, didn't we have a good time? We did. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> Thanks very much.